One of the truly amazing things that we learn about God from the Bible is that God is omnipotent. The word omnipotent is an English word that comes from two Latin words. And when you put those words together, it simply means all-powerful. Wayne Grudem refers to the doctrine about God, and he uh, says this about it. He says, it reveals that God has all power to do what he decides to do. God is all-powerful. Can you say that with me together this morning? God is all-powerful. It's one of the great truths that we learn from the Bible that should inspire us with awe and wonder. And that's not just true in our day. Throughout history, the history of humanity, followers of God have been inspired and filled with awe when they reflect on the great power and majesty of God. There's one writer in the scriptures whose name is Jeremiah. He's known as the weeping prophet in the Old Testament. But there's a point where in Jeremiah's life, he is in awe and he is filled with wonder at the power and majesty of God. Let me show you this by putting it on the screen. Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 17. Look at what it says. Ah, Lord God. Now, before we read the rest of this verse here, I just want you to think about that little word, A-H. Ah. In Hebrew, it's a word that's describing great emotion, and uh, it's motivated by a strong sense of marvel. It It would be like us today saying, Wow! Jeremiah is reflecting on the greatness and the power and the sovereignty of God, and he just says, Wow! Look at it. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time that you were thinking about God, reading about God, reading God's word, and your soul just said, Wow! You know, one of the great tragedies of our day is that we've become so familiar with God that we've lost a sense of wow. We've so reduced God down to a system of theology that that we can describe in three or four points. We've reduced God down to something that that we are comfortable relating to. And in, in the process, we have lost our sense of awe and wonder at his glory and majesty and power. What was, when, when was the last time that you were just sitting before God and you just said, wow. Listen, we all need a fresh sense of wow. Jeremiah was so wowed, he was so overwhelmed by how big God is that he just said, nothing is too hard for you. Jeremiah is looking at creation. He's looking at the majesty of the universe. He is overwhelmed with awe and wonder of the glory and the power of God. And he says, God, there is nothing too big and there is nothing too small. Nothing is too hard for you. Let me give you a life-changing reality out of this today. There is nothing that is too big for God. I don't know what you came in here with today. I don't know what you came in here carrying on your shoulders. I don't know what weight you're feeling under right now. But I want you to know, I want you to hear me when I say that that 
this is something that not only do we know today, but it has been said throughout the centuries about our God. There is nothing that is too big for our God. Nothing too big for God. wonder what Jeremiah must have been thinking about when he said what he said. Because he says, wow, you made all of this. He must have been standing outside. He must have been looking up into the heavens, seeing all of the stars. Maybe he thought... Where did all of this come from? If he were living in our day, he would have done what I did earlier this week. I googled, how many stars are there? Now, Jeremiah didn't have that privilege, but I do. So I googled it, how many stars are there? One of the first things that came up was from the University of California, Santa Barbara. And here's what they say on their site about the number of stars. We estimate. I love that word. I mean, what does it mean? Well, we're not really sure. We estimate that there are about 10 billion observable galaxies. I love that. Uh, Basically, what they're saying is, as far as we can see, as best as we can come up with, there are about 10 billion galaxies. It goes on to say, assuming, it's another great word, that there are 100 billion stars per galaxy, that means there are, get this, approximately, I mean, these are people who get paid to say these things. These are people who have PhDs, and they're saying, we estimate that there are many approximately, kind of, sort of, uh, observably, 1 billion trillion stars. Let me show you that in number form. We're going to put it up on the screen. It is a one followed by 21 zeros. What these scientists are just saying here is that, you know, as far as we can see, we we, we don't have anything that can see beyond the first one billion trillion stars. Now, I want you to just try to wrap your mind around this for a moment. What, what, what if we were to strap ourselves into a rocket ship and we just kind of decided we are going to go blast off and see if we can visit the first star? I mean, we're not talking about the star that's furthest away. We're talking about the closest star. What if we were to put ourselves in a rocket ship this morning, were to buckle in and then just kind of blast off into outer space? Right? The, the, the fastest thing that, we could, that we've ever sent out into outer space is Helios 2, 1976. Helios 2 was an unmanned uh, spacecraft that traveled at a speed of 157,000 miles per hour. If we could shoot ourselves off into outer space traveling at 157,000 miles per hour... Do you know how long it would take for us to get to the closest star? 18,000 years. And that's just to get to the closest star. I mean, can you imagine this? Once you get shot up into the air, it's 18,000 years later, you say, Hey, there's star number one! And that's the best guess. The best guess that we have is that there are one billion trillion stars out there. Jeremiah didn't have Google. He didn't have telescopes. He just looked up in the sky and he started counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, tw
two, three, four. And he just said, wow, that's, there's a lot out there. Wow, God, you made all of this. And his conclusion was, nothing is too hard for you. In comparison to the bigness of God and the power of God, everything in my life is small, even the big stuff. From Genesis to Revelation, we see evidence of the omnipotence of God. From Genesis to Revelation, we see testimony after testimony after testimony of the power of God. And one of the ways that we see power, this power, demonstrated is through the miracles of Jesus that he performed when he was here on this earth. Let me tell you what a miracle is. A miracle is an extraordinary power of God unleashed in the middle of our everyday lives. When that happens... We just have to step back and say, listen, that's a miracle. When the extraordinary power of God is unleashed in the middle of our everyday lives, we just kind of stand in awe, in wonder, and say, wow, that's a miracle. Let me ask you a question this morning. How many of you need the extraordinary power of God unleashed in your everyday life? Is there anybody here in the room today who might need that? Over the next several weeks, we are going to look at a few of the miracles that Jesus performed. We are going to learn some things from the lives of the people who experience this extraordinary power of God in their everyday lives. We are calling this series Miracles, Extraordinary Power, Everyday Life. This morning, we are going to start in Mark chapter 5. And so if you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn there. Join me in Mark chapter 5. Again, we are going to be examining some characteristics in the lives of these people who encountered the power of Jesus in their lives. But I want to just say something here at the beginning that I think is super important for us to hear, that I want to be very clear about, that I want you to hear. And so if you're turning in your Bible, just stop for a moment here, and and I just need you to, to listen to what I'm about to say, because this is super important, okay? Here it is. We cannot manipulate God onto our agenda. Listen, this is not a series that's entitled, How to Get Your Miracle. We are not trying to sell some kind of clause, special miracle clause that you can buy later on. We are not going to be distributing bottles of oil. That is not what it is that we're doing. We do not want to confuse what it is that we're talking about over the next several weeks with some kind of cheap gospel that you see preached on TV. That's not what we're saying. Again, what, what I want to be very clear here about is that, that um, I, I feel like what happens is, is that a lot of times people hear the word miracles and they get all kinds of crazy ideas that come to their minds. That's not what we're talking about, though. We cannot manipulate God onto our agenda, but we, we can learn some important lessons uh, about how God, invites, uh, how, how God invites us to live with him and to experience his power should he in his sovereign will decide to display his glory in our everyday lives in that way. 
And so that's what we're going to do. We are going to learn some characteristics. We are going to try to bring those things into our lives. And then ultimately, we are going to submit to the sovereign will of God, understanding that his plans are far better than any plans that we might have. And so with that as a bit of the foundation here this morning, we want to read from Mark chapter 5. And I want to begin in verse 21. We'll put these words up on the screen. Here's what it says. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now, this is not the miracle that we're going to be studying here today, but it's here, and I just wanted to read this in order for you to kind of see the context of what's going to happen next, because this is the story that we're going to be looking at. So verse 24 picks it up, and it says, And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So here is Jesus, he is walking on the streets, a multitude, a crowd, hundreds of people are pressing in around him. Verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus. And came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched me? Who touched my garments? And His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? I mean, here the disciples, they're like, hey, Jesus, what are you talking about? I mean, there are, there's this whole crowd of people who's around you right now. They're all touching you. What are you talking about? It's not just one person. It's a whole bunch of people. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. Verse uh, 32. And he looked around to see who had done, had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In the time that we have here this morning, I just want to look at three realities from this passage of Scripture. Number one, Life can be difficult. Life can be difficult. For 12 years, this woman had a very difficult life. Don't miss that. I think a lot of times what we do is we hear about miracles and we think that this is just a microwave moment. But she had dealt with this for 12 years. Over a decade, she had experienced this. You see, God created a beautiful world. Sin entered into this world, marred it, marred that which God had made so beautifully. 
I love the way that J.C. Riles talks about this, what he says when he said, sin is the cause of all the pain and disease in the world. God did not create us to be ailing and suffering creatures. It was sin and nothing but sin which brought in all of the ills that the flesh is heir to. Now, he's not saying that um, you know, anybody who goes through difficult times is experiencing that because of something that they've done, because of their sin. What, what he's saying is that humanity and creation as a whole is theologically experiencing what we call the fall of humanity. That, that when sin entered into the world, creation fell under the curse And one of the applications of that is that disease and sickness, hardship and death came along with that. Life can be hard. This woman was hurting. She was sick for 12 years. She had been hemorrhaging. She had been bleeding internally, which left her weak and anemic. The Bible says that she had been abused by doctors. In fact, the word that Mark uses here literally is that she endured much, that she suffered. It's the same word that's used of Jesus in uh, the last parts of the Gospels when it, it talks about the suffering that he went through, the passion of the Christ, the crucifixion. She had gone through a lot because the doctors in this particular situation had mismanaged her care. She spent every dime that she had. She didn't have any money left. She had exhausted it all on every remedy that was out there that had been offered. The Bible says that not only was she not any better, she actually had gotten worse. In fact, one writer said that she had lost her health, her wealth, and because of the nature of her illness, also her standing in society. Because she was a woman in that day and age, in that culture, with a sickness like that, she would have been declared unclean, unfit to live in the community with others. She had been alienated and ostracized. Her situation was completely hopeless. Have you ever been in a difficult place in life? Maybe you're here this morning, right now, you're finding yourself in a very difficult place. Maybe it's your health, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's your relationship with your kids or your job, or maybe it's a financial situation that you're in. But as you sit here this morning, you feel like this woman. Maybe you felt this way for days, maybe for weeks, maybe for months, maybe for years. Maybe you're thinking, I didn't think that Christians were supposed to go through things like this. Listen, that's a lie. Don't believe it. In fact, listen to what Peter had to say about that. 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He said, look, don't be surprised. There are going to be times in your life where it's going to be difficult. This woman was in a difficult place in life. But then... She heard about Jesus. I love this great transition here in the text. Verse 26, she had suffered much. She spent all that she had. She was no better, but rather she grew worse. Verse 27, oh, but after she heard the reports about Jesus. 
She was physically, emotionally, financially drained until she heard about Jesus. Do you know what I thought when I read that? I wonder who told her. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Who told her? I mean, was it a relative? Was it a friend? Was it some stranger just passing by? And when I thought about that, I thought, how many people do I pass by every day just like that? And all they need to go from helpless and hopeless to hopeful is is to just have somebody tell them about the man who can change their life. What happened for this woman is that after she heard about Jesus, a flame of faith began to be birthed inside of her. And it wasn't perfect faith, but it was desperate faith. And that's the second reality that I want you to see here. Faith must be desperate. If you and I are going to experience the extraordinary power of God in our everyday lives, then our faith must be desperate. You say, well, what does desperate faith look like? I'm glad that you asked because I want to give you some characteristics of what desperate faith looks like. Number one, desperate faith is fixed. Desperate faith is fixed. The the word fixed in the dictionary is defined as something that is fastened in one place so that it is not moved. This woman's faith was fixed. Her, Her faith was not in a method. Her faith was not in her faith. Like, like, oh, if I just had enough faith. No, her faith was fixed on Jesus. If I can just touch him. Number two, desperate faith is also urgent. Desperate faith is urgent. She does not view Jesus as an option that she had. She views Jesus as her only hope. Friends, too many times we get in a difficult situation in our lives and we come to the table. We lay that difficult situation on the table and then we begin to lay out all of the options on the table as well. I mean, yes, there's Jesus, but there's also this and there's this and there's this and there's this. And if it starts to get really, 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 really bad, then we start taking all of these other things away and we're left with Jesus. But this woman's faith was, was urgent. Basically, what she was saying is, listen, if God is not God, then I'm dead. What's sad is that that's the way that we should be all the time as Christians. Not just in the difficult times, because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, there should be an urgency in our lives to live moment by moment in dependence upon Jesus. Number three, desperate faith is persistent. Desperate faith is persistent. I don't know how long it had been since she had heard about Jesus, but the wording in verse 28 implies that some time had actually gone by. Here's what it says in verse 28. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. 
In the Greek there, uh, when she says, when it says she said, it's the implication there is that it's talking about in the past, she had said this leading up to this moment, that she had said this over and over and over again ever since she had heard about Jesus. She didn't know how to get to Jesus. She didn't know where Jesus was. She didn't really know who Jesus was. She had just had somebody tell her about Jesus, and she kept saying every moment of every day, every day, day of every week, every week of every month, I just need to get to Jesus. There was a persistence about her faith. You can see it in what she said. You can see it also in what she did. There there was a crowd that was pressing in around Jesus. There, There was a lot of people around him. And yet this little, weak, sick, anemic, outcast woman just pushed her way through the crowd. She would not be denied. I mean, she was going to get to Jesus. No one was going to keep her from him. Number four, desperate faith is expectant. Desperate faith is expectant. If I can just touch him, I will be made well. She did not say, I might be made well. She clearly expected God to move in her life, expectant. Now, it wasn't wasn't demanding. She she didn't know what the timing was going to look like. She, She didn't know whether this was going to be something that would happen right away or the next day or the next week, the next month, the next year, or maybe sometime out into eternity. But she just said, listen, if I can get to him, he will unleash my his power into my life. This is not coming to him demanding in a way, in any way. Uh, where God's going to move and how God's going to move, that somehow we can move God onto our agenda. It's believing the promise of God that he has spoken to his people and he will provide, he will unleash his power in our lives. This woman's life was a living expression of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse uh, 6. says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This woman says, listen, I believe that he exists and I believe that he will do what he says he will do. All I have to do is touch his garments. Listen to the way that D. Edmund Hibbert writes about faith. He says, Faith is this wholehearted attitude of a full and unquestioning committal to and dependence upon God as he has revealed himself to us in Christ Jesus. It is the proper human response to the goodness of God. When we approach God with our petitions, we must believe not only his ability to grant our requests, but also in his willingness to answer in harmony with his character and purpose. That's why the writer of Hebrews says we we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and help in our time of need. Desperate faith is expectant. But then number five, desperate faith is bigger than me. Desperate faith is bigger than me. In verse 33, it says that when Jesus turned around, she came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
You see, she understood that God's activity in her life wasn't just about uh, her need. It was about his glory. If it was just about her, she could have gotten healed and just left, ran away, ran back home. But she fell, she came and she fell down at his feet so that everybody would know about his glory and his majesty. It's bigger than me. So life can be difficult. Faith must be desperate. But then a third reality is that desperate faith in difficult times invites the extraordinary power of God into my everyday life. Desperate faith in difficult times invites the extraordinary power of God into my everyday life. Did you hear what it it said? Immediately. Immediately the flow of blood dried up and Jesus looked at her and said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Listen, I can't explain everything about it, but here's what I know. God was moved by this woman's faith. As we draw our time to a close here today, I want you to just think about this in a very personal way. I want you to know that today you can experience God's power. Look at this quote from J.C. Ryle. He says, Christ has not changed since the day when this woman was healed. He is still generous and still powerful to save. Today, you can experience very personally The power of God at work in your life. You say, Pastor, well, why is it that uh, we see God's power on display in the past or maybe in other places? But it doesn't seem so much that in the North American church today that there is the power of God on display like it is in all of these other places. Well, let me tell you what I think. This is why. It's because we have a lot of crowds kind of pressing in around Jesus. But there's a very few number of people who are actually grabbing a hold of his garment. Listen, there are a whole lot of people who went home that day and who did not experience the power of God in their lives. They were in the same place at the same time around the same person. But there was only one who in desperate faith grabbed a hold of his garment and was changed. Desperate faith is not perfect faith, but it's fixed, it's urgent, it's persistent, it's expectant, and it's bigger than me. She did not care what anybody thought. She did not care what anybody was going to say about it. Look, friend, today you can experience the power of God. Maybe for you today, you're lost. That you have never been forgiven by God. You've never experienced salvation. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. You don't know what it is to have a relationship with God. Let me tell you something. Today you can experience the power of God in salvation in your life. You may have come here and you're lost. You're separated from God. But you can leave today being born again through the saving power of Jesus. All you have to do is grab a hold of him and accept his free forgiveness in desperate faith. Maybe today you're here and your need is for God to touch your body. Maybe what you need is physical healing. Let me tell you what I know. God is going to heal you. He is. It it, it may be today. It may be tomorrow. It may be next week. It may even be when he comes back. 
But, but let me tell you what I know, that you are not going to be like this forever. He does exist, and he is going to do what he has said he is going to do. Maybe it's today that you will experience this. Maybe you will grab a hold of his garment today in dependent, desperate faith on him and that you will trust for him to move. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you walked in today, your marriage is on the brink of disaster. You know it. Your spouse knows it. Your kids know it. Maybe your neighbors even know about it. Today you walked in and this is your last hope. Let me invite you to just grab a hold of his garment. Maybe it's your job or maybe it's your finances. It could be any number of things here this morning. I could, we could go around and give a whole bunch of different examples. But I'm just saying that what you need, what we need today is in desperate God-honoring, God-glorifying faith to come running to the feet of Jesus, to believe that he is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he's going to do, that we cry out to him in desperate faith and experience his free forgiveness, his grace, his mercy, his peace, and his life-giving power. 